So I'm curious, in the meditation, uh, when I talked about turning towards your experience and noticing any moments of peace, moments of where the mind isn't seeking something outside of itself, when it's not resisting what's showing up, I'm wondering how many of those moments were noticed. Anybody notice any moments like that? (laughs) It's a serious question. (laughs) Okay, not many hands. (laughs) Some hands. Okay, thank you. But that's not many hands. Class dismissed. (laughs) 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 Just kidding. (laughs) So, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, little case study right there. What's happening if in our meditation, in our lives, if those moments are so rare and fleeting and inaccessible. So from the point, from the perspective of these teachings, these teachings are leading towards the uh, accessing and understanding and living that reality, that those moments are not just fleeting, inescapable moments, but they actually become more the baseline of our experience, which may sound like a long way off at this point. (laughs) But that's the possibility, to know peace, to know peace as one's nature, to have a relationship with oneself and the world that is more grounded in peace than in reactivity. So my guess is if you actually looked more and paid attention more, you would actually discover that there's more peaceful moments than you realize. That's my hypothesis. (laughs) Could be proved wrong by the amount of hands that we're (laughs) So um, there's a great teacher, there was a great teacher, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who's sort of one of the important part of the lineage of the lineage here at Spirit Rock. And he he talked a lot about these moments of peace. He called them moments of nibbana, moments of nirvana. So the Buddha... So what I want to talk about tonight is the third noble truth. So the first noble truth is the truth of there is, there is what in this world? There is suffering. You're all quite familiar with that. (laughs) And the second noble truth that I covered last time I was here is what? The cause of suffering. Attachment, grasping, resistance, aversion. Okay. Anybody know those? Familiar with those? Okay. Just checking. So, and then the Buddha said, there is, and which is really the fruit of his discovery, there is a cessation, there is freedom from this 
from these torments of mind and heart that, that burn through us, the force of greed and longing and, and hatred and anger and fear and all of that, that it's possible to be free from those afflictions. And he gave lots of um, descriptions of that, of that reality of peace, of bliss, of freedom, emptiness, the supreme abiding, all kinds of beautiful names. And then so Achan Buddhadasa was talking about that, that we can taste, we, we can taste, have a sense of that experience, that reality. He said if we, if we didn't have many, many moments of Nibbana, we would actually just internally combust with the fires of hatred and greed and anger and all the things that are challenging that, that happen through us. But that's, but that's not our experience. We also have many beautiful qualities, love, of peace, of kindness, of clarity, of compassion, generosity, ease, well-being, connection, right? Many, many qualities that we have access to where those, those difficult states and experiences, feelings are not coursing. And so he said to look, pay attention to these moments. these moments of peace, because they're pointers. They're, they're actually what we're seeking. We're seeking from all of our busy activity of work and relationship and spiritual practice and all of that, what we're seeking, well, peace, ease, well-being. And yet we overlook the very thing that we're looking for. Right? It's way closer than we think it is. We do all these things. We work really hard to go on vacation. We fly all the way to Bali. We get a house and we get a nice beach. Ah, oh, so I can be at peace. <laughs> it's a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of carbon. <laughs> and you know, and it's a beautiful thing to do. Why not? You know, if you can, if you want to. And yet, we can also experience that right here, right now, in this moment, on this chair, on this cushion, wherever you are. It's possible depending on what we're doing with our mind and our heart and our reactivity. So this is the good news of the practice, that this is possible and we can start to understand what supports that, what allows that, and what interferes with that. So we learn how to work wisely with the the difficult forces that I talked about last time of, of longing and hating, resisting, all the ways that we're in contention with the moment, all the ways that we're wanting this experience right now, even this moment right now, to be different, right? Oh, I wish it was more interesting. Or I wish, I was, I wish I'd gone to see that movie. <laughs> I wish those cookies were not so big. I feel so gross. I've eaten three of them. <laughs> so this is from the Buddha talking about this experience. He said, enraptured with craving, enraged with anger, blinded by ignorance, overwhelmed with a mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, the ruin of others, and the ruin of both, and they experience pain and grief. But if these forces of greed, of hatred, of delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin nor at another's, nor both, 
and they experience no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbāna, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So this may seem incredibly distant from where you know yourself to be right now, (coughs) or maybe this seems closer than you think. So just notice where you, what, what your response is to this idea of the possibility of freedom, of liberation from all that causes suffering, mental suffering, self-created suffering. Or, <clears throat> according to this ad in Outside Magazine, where there's a picture of a woman on a mountain bike drinking orange juice, no, drinking grapefruit juice, it says... It says, um, it's an actual photo of a woman in Nirvana. If you can see that for a minute. <laughs> this is how it looks. No wonder it's America's favorite grapefruit juice. She's drinking a cup of Tropicana Pure Premium Ruby Red grapefruit juice. So maybe it's closer than we think. In Safeway. We can all beeline in San Anselmo. If you're not fully enlightened by the end of the evening, just pick up your grapefruit juice. And <laughs> so, of course, our culture always does funny things with these beautiful, spiritual, profound teachings. So, so how do we work with this? How do, how do we understand this teaching? How do we learn to be, to live without contention to what's happening? How do we find peace in the midst of the very nitty-gritty substance of our life, in the relationships, in our work challenges, in our economic woes, in our health issues, in whatever situation we find ourselves in? How is it possible to be at peace with all of that? Maybe it was easy for the Buddha because he was a monk and he lived in the forest and you know, didn't have email then, <laughs> didn't have to you know, keep up with his twittering and you know, it was just, <laughs> you know, peace was more ac- accessible. So one orientation to this um, that is simply the practice of letting go. Letting go of these tendencies of mind that keep afflicting us. But of course, letting go is not so easy, right? And you probably hear a lot about letting go in these spiritual circles, and you go, well, yeah, but it's not that easy. Like, if I could let go, I would, right? But I can't, because, well, I try, and it doesn't work. How do I let go of my fear? Oh, just let go. You know, you've heard that for a million times. Oh, just let go. (laughs) You grip with anxiety. (laughs) I just let go. <laughs> it's all good. It's all one. <laughs> Great, but I'm really anxious. <laughs> Where's the pharmacy? <laughs> so this is from um, so there's a, so the line I'm sure you heard Jack mention it many times. Um, one of his teachers, Achan Chah, used to say, "If you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace." So this is one doorway to this. So one of his main students, Ajahn Sumedho, had this to say about letting go. 
the practice of letting, and I'm letting go of my bad eyesight and now learning to wear glasses that don't fit me. These might fall off as I read, but I'm going to give it a go. Okay, here we, here we go. Now I can see. It's meditation just like that. You just put the glasses on and everything gets clearer. <laughs> the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this, read the sutras, study the Abhidhamma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majjhimika and Prajnaparamita, these are all Buddhist texts and teachings. Get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, the three main schools of Buddhism. <laughs> Write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and getting invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, and let go. I did nothing but this for about two years, and every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd simply say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences, <laughs> which is true from my own experience. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just becoming an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world, and just be someone who knows two words, let go, let go, let go. So, um, so what does it mean to let go? Um, for me, mostly letting go is more a process that happens by itself than a, an active doing. Because mostly, it's not so easy to let go of the things we'd like to let go of. One of the places that we can practice letting go is with our thoughts. Thoughts are pretty often quite light and ephemeral. And just as in meditation, we practice letting go hundreds of times in a single sitting, right? So the thing you, you sit down, you feel your breath for maybe ooh, two seconds, and then you're back at work, or you're back at home, or you're in your relationship, or your lack of relationship, or whatever it is, the story, you know, we see our thoughts, we see them, we see them. And it's not so difficult to, oh, thinking, planning, story-making, let it go, and we come back, right? That's a simple... A simple accessing peace in the moment through letting go of our stories and our thoughts, right? So we know that from our experience. We can do that. It's, it's workable. And in particular, if we come into a, a wiser relationship with our thoughts, so there's a think, there's a, this the wandering habitual thoughts that, 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 that cycle around like, like a tumble dryer. And then we have our relationship to thoughts. So what's your relationship to thinking like? Do you hate it? Is it an enemy? Do you despise it? Do you make a problem out of it? Do you judge yourself for having thoughts? I know that's, an, that's another thought. I shouldn't be thinking. It's another judging thought. God, I'm such a hopeless meditator. <laughs> Notice your relationship to thoughts. Maybe we can have a little, letting, a little more letting go around this idea that meditation is thought-free. Right? Whoever said meditation didn't have thoughts in it? Right? Meditation's about coming into wise relationship with what's happening, including our thinking. This is from Suzuki Roshi from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Oh dear, the glasses are needed again. All right. When you are pr practicing Zazen meditation, do not try to stop your thinking. Let it stop by itself. If something comes into your mind, let it come in, let it go out. It will not stay long. 
When you try to stop your thinking, it means you're bothered by it. Do not be bothered by anything. It appears that something comes from outside your mind, but actually it's only the waves of your mind. And if you're not bothered by the waves, gradually they'll become calmer and calmer. Many sensations come, many thoughts and images arise, but they are just waves from your own mind. If you leave your mind as it is, it will become calm. This state is called big mind. <coughs> so it's another form of letting go, which is to allow things to be as it is. And I'm going to say a little more about that process later. A more common experience where it's not so easy to practice letting go is with our emotions. So how many of you are having most strong emotions as you are sitting today? Anybody? A few? Anybody awake during the meditation today? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so often in our lives we encounter very difficult emotions. Emotions that are hard to be with. Loss, sadness, grief, despair, hopelessness fear, anxiety, dread. Do I need to go on or should I get, we just get too <laughs> depressed? <laughs> so and emotions are a lot slower process than our thoughts. They have a certain time span. They dwell, they reside in the body. And the process of letting go of emotion, uh, I think often we try to apply letting go as a form of getting rid of. I don't like what I'm feeling, this anger, this jealousy, this antagonism. I'm just going to practice letting go, which means I'm just going to deny it's happening and (laughs) bypass and not feel it or try and get rid of it and stuff it, right? That's often how we relate to difficult emotions. So the, the letting go with these more afflictive emotions is really, the letting go is the end process of just simply learning how to be with these experiences. They had to, to meet, to feel, to sense, to allow, to allow them to unfold. And when we cease resisting them, they, they flower, they do what they do, and they pass away. We learn whatever's to be learned, and they pass away. We don't actually have to do any letting go except allowing, we let go to, we surrender to the process unfolding by itself. And in that process, we can be at peace in the midst of whatever emotional storm is happening. Right? So this, you know, I'll say a little more about how we add to the suffering. So an example that I was thinking of this morning as I was reflecting on this talk was uh, I, my relationship ended uh, about five months ago. And um, as all relationships, I mean, not all, but most relationships that end, it's very painful, it's very sad, there's a lot of grief and a lot of loss. And um, there's no, the, the idea of just letting go, you know, is not really an option. The, 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 the practice is to simply meet with a very kind heart the process of grieving, of sadness, of, and the, there's a letting go of, the, of what was, of the relationship and all of that. And so in that journey, as I've learned through this practice over these many years, to simply meet and allow the experience to unfold itself, and when we, when we allow that, when there's no resistance, when there's a letting go to, to, to any idea of what we think should be happening, but we just trust in the process, then there's no actual suffering in the process. It might be painful. You know, sadness isn't easy. Loss is difficult. 
grief is not so easy. But when there's no fighting, no resisting it, then there's a certain kind of peace. There can even be a sweetness, because the sweetness comes from simply meeting the experience as it is. This is from the poet Rilke. You have, a, you have had many and great sadnesses, but please consider whether these great sadnesses have not gone right to the center of yourself, whether much in you has not altered, whether you have not somewhere at some point of your being undergone a change while you were sad. For our sadnesses are the moments when something new has entered into us, something unknown. <coughs> our feelings grow mute in the perplexity, everything in us withdraws, a stillness comes, and the new which no one knows, stands in the midst of it and is silent. So we let these experiences touch us, inform us, flow through us, and then the letting go happens by itself. Which is more what I want to talk to, speak to right now, which is more the process of letting be, the process of allowing. So the Buddha pointed to the fact that everything in our experience, everything in this world is transient. Right? Everything is changing. Have you, have you encountered anything that doesn't change in your experience? Yeah. You're worth a lot of money if you had, but you probably haven't because we don't live in this. That, that, that's not the law. The laws that govern this universe, everything, no matter how precious, is changing. Right? And so everything naturally arises and passes away arises and passes into cessation. No matter how intense, how difficult, how beautiful, how joyous, it arises and passes into cessation. And we can take a lot of refuge in this when we're, when we're struggling, when we're in difficulty, when we're suffering, to remember, because when we're, when we're in the midst of our difficult times, right, we think, oh my God, it's going to be like this forever. I'm always going to be depressed. I'm always going to be heartbroken. I'm always going to be anxious, I'm always going to be, right, fill in the blanks, right? How many of you think that when you're in the middle of your story, the middle of your pain, right? We forget, and it can bring tremendous refuge to know, oh, this too will pass. This too will pass. So it allows us to actually allow it to be, because we know it's not going to be forever. This is again from Achan Sumedho. Achan Sumedho, he's been a monk for about... 40-some years, and his main practice over those 40 years has been the practice of the Four Noble Truths, which is, you know, the, the foundation of Buddhist teaching, and it's a very simple teaching, but it's also very profound, and it's beautiful to listen to him teach, because you see someone who's taken this very pithy teaching that's very simple. You can explain it to a child of seven or get it, but you can also take it to its, you know, utmost depths. So he has this to say about the truth of cessation. He says, to allow the truth of cessation to work, which is allowing things to just naturally cease in their own time, we must be willing to suffer. That's why this option isn't so popular. <laughs> this is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to, to, suf to suffering, because in embracing suffering, that suffering comes to cease. When we find that we are suffering, a typo here, so I have to make this one up. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a vision thing, it's a typo thing. 
I had this long quote that went off the page, so it's probably back home on my printer ribbon somewhere. Okay. So when we open to the actual suffering that is present, we open completely to it. We welcome it. We concentrate on, concentrate on it. We allow it to be what it is. And that we, means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom or despair or doubt or fear in order to understand that they cease rather than to run away from them. And as his teacher often said, to, but by running away from suffering, we run towards it. And this practice is, oh, suffering is here, pain is here. Let me meet it and be with it because we see that peace is possible if I'm in non-contention with this experience, if I'm not fighting and resisting. And we're just with it as it is. Oh, anxiety is like this. It feels like trembly, shaking. It feels like my whole skin is itchy. And anger is like this. It feels like hot and expanded and hard and tight in my belly. But this is, not e- this is not an easy practice to simply meet our experience as it is, but to meet our emotions as they are. But to do anything else is either a distraction or suffering. Right? So that's why we practice mindfulness, mindful attention. We come back again and again and again simply being what, with what is, meeting ourselves, whatever wants to reveal itself. So again, this is from Suzuki Roshi. I read this a lot here, and I think it's really, we can't hear this enough. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and your thoughts and worries, And you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. Because the power of your practice allows you to show up, to meet whatever difficulty arises. That's the the point of this, in a way. So I had an example of this yesterday. Um, I was at a friend's uh, birthday gathering. And some other friends of mine were there with their four-year-old, very lively exuberant child. <laughs> and uh, he, wasn't get, he was used to getting a lot of attention from my friend whose birthday it is, but because it was her birthday, she was giving a lot of attention to everybody else. So in good four-year-old fashion, he went up and punched her on the nose. <laughs> and had a little temper tantrum. And um, so he had his little moment, and his parents you know, took him aside to another part of the meadow and just let him... You know, let it blow through, let it calm down, let it, let it pass into cessation. True enough, as children express very swiftly, you know, things move through children very quickly. So he's mad one minute, gets it out, has a little rant, runs around, and then, oh, chocolate cake, great. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, my poor friend's birth is... His <laughs> So, so I want to speak a little more to why letting go can be so difficult. And I want to explore the difference between pain and suffering, because I think this is an important distinction in this, this teaching. So th- 
pain is inevitable, as so the saying goes, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. That may be debatable by some of you, but that's, 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 that's the slogan. It's not a Buddhist slogan, but I think it fits, actually. So in the Buddha's life is a good example. You know, he's someone who's you know, profound awakening, very free, very at peace. And he had backache, he had uh, you know, fatigue when he was older, he had a lot of trouble with his monks and nuns, they were a rowdy bunch who he couldn't quite bring to order, he'd leave, go off to the forest to have some quiet, peace and quiet. He had people try to assassinate him several times. Um, followers of other sects would always be taunting him. So he didn't have actually didn't have an easy life, um, yet knew a lot of peace. And um, he grew, he lived till he was 80, so I think he outlived a lot of his um, friends and disciples. And he had two <laughs> close, his closest disciples, who I imagine were his closest friends, who he'd, he, um, uh, I think was probably with for about 40 years. And they were very close, they were his main teachers. And they passed away before he died. And he said, someone said, how is it for you? You know, these two great friends and teachers of yours, how is it for you that they've passed away? He said, it's like the sun and the moon in the sky disappearing forever. You know, clearly this man was touched, felt deeply by loss. But I also imagine there was a profound equanimity, a profound, yeah, this is, this is the nature of this life. We love, we connect, and we let go. It's the nature of the coming and the going of conditions or relationships. So one of the things that the Buddha spoke to about this relationship between suffering and pain, which I think is very pertinent for all of us, is, and he gave this simile of, um, the two darts, the teaching on the two darts, the two arrows. So just living a normal human life, we experience the first arrow, the first dart a lot. Just having a human body, having physical pain, having a heart and having emotional distress and sadness and being in the world and trying to make a living and all of that. And there's a lot of challenges, a lot of, a lot of ordinary day-to-day -day suffering. The second dart, he says, is really the, the dart that we're looking at in Buddhist practice, which is what we do with that, how we relate to that. And usually the second dart is how we add to that pain by our own sort of mental habits. So the classic way we do that is we give ourselves a hard time for suffering. You know, we beat ourselves up, oh God, I can't believe I'm still feeling grief, like you should be over this by now. <coughs> Like, why are you still sad? You know, you've got a great life. Buck up. <laughs> Be happy. You know, just let go. <laughs> just relax. <laughs> Do you love it when people tell you that? Just relax. <laughs> Thanks. So we add this extra layer. Oh, I should be over this. I shouldn't, you know, I should be further along in my practice by now. I shouldn't be having wandering thoughts in my meditation. I'm such a bad meditator. Oh, I shouldn't be feeling all this vulnerability. You know, that's just for wimps, you know. Oh, I shouldn't be feeling anger. I, I, you know, the Dalai Lama said it's really bad to feel anger. I shouldn't be feeling angry. I should, you know, stuff it or something. So I have a client who works as a systems analyst, and she has a new job 
taking on this huge project. And, and it's bad enough being in this new job trying to understand this very complicated system she's working for for a major bank. And then all every day, every hour, every moment that she's not understanding, not getting it, not, not uh, getting to grips with this system quick enough, her mind's tormenting her with, you should know this already. And the day, the first day she got the job, job, her mind was saying, you should know this already. What's wrong with you? Uh-huh. Don't reveal that you don't know anything. Uh-huh. You should know it. Right? How many years? It's like when we come to meditation. Oh, I should know this by now. That's the second dot. So notice that in, in your experience. Where do you add the second dot in your experience? Does this the, you know, the ordinary suffering that we experience? And then we add. So other reasons why letting go might be challenging because of the strength of the forces that we're dealing with. So in this particular teaching of the Noble Truth, the Buddha was speaking to the, the sort of primary impulses in us, the movement of fear, moving away from anything that's threatening, that's, that's difficult, or the movement of wanting, liking, grasping, holding on, attachment. Right? Two primary forces that blow through us all the time. Right? We're either always moving towards something, liking something, wanting it, grabbing it, holding onto it, getting it, achieving for it, striving for it. And just look at your meditation practice. How much wanting was there in your meditation? I want to be quiet. I want my mind to shut up. I want my neighbor to stop breathing so loudly. I want, I want, I want, right? Or how much aversion was there? Or fear? oh my God, my knee's starting to hurt. It's only five minutes. I'm going to be crippled by the time I... <laughs> we see, and then we, when these whole stories, you know, we're wheeling out of here in an ambulance, you know. <laughs> We've just got this little tickle in our knee. You know? <laughs> so Achan Amaro, who's a monk and a, and a teacher here, he talks about this movement being so primary, the movement that, we, you know, we're cellular, you know, biological organisms, and there's a cell has three impulses, either moving towards something, to, the movement is either, can I eat it? Is it going to eat me? That's the, being repelled, or can I mate with it? That's the three sort of instinctual <laughs> impulses that we have as cellular organisms. It just sums it up. <laughs> So that's what we're up against, you know. Oh, just let go. Yeah. Just let go of that lust. Oh, yeah. Just let go of that, you know, profound biological evolutionary impulse to reproduce and maintain the species. Yeah, just let go. Not a problem. <laughs> so one thing that helps with, with this... The, I, this tracking this, these movements towards and away from is, um, I think I mentioned this last time, for those who are here, for those who weren't, it's too bad because it was a really good teaching, but no, just kidding, <laughs> um, is this, um, the, the, the building block of this movement towards or away from is 
the desire for the pleasant, pleasure, pleasant or pleasure, and the, the aversion towards the unpleasant. Right? That we're these two primary feeling tones that we actually experience every moment in our, in our, in our day. The moment's either pleasant and we want more of it, it's unpleasant, we want to get away from it, or it's neutral and we don't care. It's neutral so we actually fantasize about something pleasant. Ooh. So right now, just notice what your experience is like. Is it pleasant? Are you enjoying? Are you happy? Are you hoping this evening goes on forever? You're having such a great time, right? Or maybe you're bored and you're tired and you just want to go to bed and it's like, enough already, when's it going to ring the bell? Right? But track the feeling tone, the pleasantness and unpleasantness. That's what we're wanting more of. You know, the particulars are just sort of incidental, really. It's the actual the pleasure that we you know we come, we will fly to Bali to have that pleasurable experience. So, so this helps us because that's what we're, one of the things we're learning how to be at peace with is that movement and also that capacity to be at ease with those, with that movement of pleasure and the pleasant and unpleasant. So take physical pain. I talked about this the other week, I think. So when you have physical pain, say you have some chronic pain, right? When you can't, there's no, nothing you can do to get rid of it. At some point, you just have to learn how to be with it. You just have to meet the sensations, meet the unpleasantness, meet the difficulty. And we can see with something that's ongoing like that, that sometimes we can be at peace and it's fine. Sometimes we're hating it. Sometimes we're completely gripped in, 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 the, in the pain of it or the fear of it. Right? So it's all about how we relate to these experiences. So the support we have in this practice is through the practice of mindfulness. So this is what allows, this is the doorway to, to liberation, to freedom, to understanding how to be at peace with what's happening. And that's why we practice this. Because what mindfulness does is it allows us to have more space it's like a, it creates a bigger container for our experience to unfold within. Right? So it's a difference between when we're caught up and lost in something, we're caught up in some anxiety or some fear, and then there's just and then there's a moment of recognition. Oh, oh God, I'm really anxious about this. Oh, but it's 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 okay. You know, it's, I'm not going to die. You know, maybe we had that moment in meditation, you know, it's like we're freaking out about something. Did I leave the gas on? Did I pay that bill? Did I make that phone call? What's he going to say when I didn't return his call? Blah, blah, blah. A lot of anxiety. And we're just caught in it, right? You're just lost in that thought tunnel. And then we sort of wake up and go, oh, I'm really anxious. Oh, it kind of sucks. But, oh, and, if, and it feels like this. And then and, and it's like we burst the bubble, and then what's, what's there? There's space, there's a little openness, there's, a little, there's more capacity. Oh, it's not such a big deal. Oh, it's just a little anxiety about so-and-so. You know? And it comes and it goes. So mindfulness gives us a lot more resor- resources to learn how to be at ease with these difficult things. So it's not like the physical pain disappears but it gives us a spaciousness to learn how to hold it, learn how to breathe with it. 
So it reminds me of a story that I sometimes tell about when I was teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And I was with chronic pain patients, and uh, these patients are sent there by the medical system when the medical system's given up on them. Their bodies didn't conform to modern medicine, so, you know, they're kicked out. You know. Must be something wrong with you. So they would get sent, sent to the pain clinic, and so we'd work with them through mindfulness. And um, this one particular week, probably about week five, which is when the practice starts taking root, people do about half of an hour of meditation a week, <coughs> a day, half an hour of meditation a day, mindfulness practice. And it gives people profound uh, capacity to learn how to be with pain. It doesn't make the pain go away, but it allows a certain peacefulness in relationship to it. And this particular woman had chronic neck pain for 10 years, tried all kinds of operations, pain meds, nothing worked, and she came to this class as a last hope. And um, <laughs> so notice the sensation of pain. Notice, notice the unpleasantness. Okay. So she's and so so she's very excited. She, one day she comes to the class because she she'd gotten to a quiet place in the meditation where she was able to strip away all the resistance and the contraction, the fear and the hatred, and and she was able to soften enough around it to feel the actual raw experience of the pain. She said, I hadn't really experienced that for 10 years. All I've experienced is my fear and my contraction and my hatred of it, which of course just makes it worse. And the actual sensation, even though it wasn't pleasant, it was still unpleasant, but it was bearable. And that was very liberating for her. Reminds me of another story of when I was teaching in San Quentin. And I, I forget exactly where I heard this story. Um, I guess from one of the inmates or one of the people who were working with the inmates. And it was a man who, um, he, was, he was a lifer. And um, he was out doing yard work and someone had taken his cup of coffee, which is not a good thing to do. And he knew who it was and he was furious and uh, they were doing this garden work. And so when this guy came up who had stolen the coffee, he was about to uh, crack him over the head with the spade, with a spade, a shovel. And, um, but he'd also been practicing mindfulness and he caught himself. He sort of had that moment of clarity of the <coughs> suffering that would ensue from that moment. And he stopped and he put it down. And there was a moment of Nibbana right there. A moment of not of ceasing to act out from that pattern. So we all have that capacity, and we we all, this does arise in our in our experience. And as we practice, it deepens. We see the potential for going down these painful roads, and we say, "Oh no, I don't need to go there." So the same with the movement towards. There's a, there's a really beautiful teaching. I'm going to talk more about it in, in the coming, in, in the future talk. This, this notion called tamayata. It's a Pali word. And it means the way that we concoct and construct a reality that's not really there. 
which is really what we do with everything. We sort of create this world and this story about me and you and Spirit Rock and life and Obama and whoever else it is. We concoct this, you know, Bali, you know. <laughs> and then we, then, then we, we, we buy our, that press, our own press release and we get hooked into seeking that reality. And I'm sure you've heard stories of people who've uh, created, you know, concocted these things, fame, success, money, power, whatever it is, achieved the pinnacle of that process and realized it was not what it was cracked up to be, not what they thought it was going to be. There's this great moment or line from Matt Damon after he won the Oscar for his first Oscar, whenever it was, Goodwill hunting, thank you. And um, he got home, and the thought that came to him was, uh, he said, I I hope I didn't screw anyone to get this, because it just isn't worth it. So here we are, the pinnacle of that industry, get an Oscar. And and, And that concoction that's created around that reality, and at the same time, he saw that it was insubstantial. Not denying that there's, you know, there's, 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 there can be validity to that whole process, and it's just a constructed reality. When we see through the constructions that we're creating all the time, it takes away their power to grip us. And that allows us to be less bound by wanting and longing and craving endlessly, which is the thing that keeps us from being at peace in the moment. We keep tripping over ourselves, longing for some future experience, right? I will be peaceful when, I'll be in nirvana when, just get all my meditation cushions right and my meditation cottage in the garden and, you know, the bells and the whistles and the mudras and then I'll have my moment of peace, right? Or like a man who spoke to me on retreat last week who'd been in in nursing for 35 years, just came up to his retirement. And like so many people who'd also concocted an idea of what his retirement would be was not what he thought it would be. And he is now going back to wanting to help people, wanting to serve people. This illusion that he created was not quite what I thought it was going to be. So I'm not saying that we, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, denying or devaluing a place for our visions and our goals and our, de- and our, and our genuine um, wishes to manifest beautiful things in the world, to help others to create beautiful things, but to look at the relationship to that. We can do great work in the world. We can, we can do beautiful things with each other. But if we're every step of the way gripped in some fiery attachment about my way, how it should be, how it's going to look, that's the suffering. Just like Gandhi, who every morning when he woke up and would decide how he's going to dismantle the British Empire, 
which was a lofty task at, you know, in, the, in the 40s when the British Empire was an empire. And he wouldn't act out, he wouldn't enact what he decided to do unless it was free from his attachment that day, unless it was free of his self-grasping, because it's the cause of suffering. So a couple last things I want to speak to. One is the importance of um, the importance of kindness and compassion in how we relate to the moment, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to the inevitable difficulty of being in this human life. So when, we, when we're able to meet our experience and ourselves with some kindness, with some care, with some caution, when we, when we can feel, not just be mindful of the difficulty, but actually feel the tenderness. You know? When we feel the suffering, that, that the pain that we so often meet as a human being, right? the loss, the sadness, the grief, whatever. It gives so much more capacity to hold it. Otherwise, it's, it's very easy, especially as we practice, we get really aware, we get really mindful, and we see all the diff- a lot of difficulty that might arise. And it's easy to slip into judgment or aversion or rejection or coolness or indifference. And so we need to also cultivate a warmth or a tenderness when we acknowledge the suffering that's present in ourselves or in the world, it allows the heart to come forward a little bit. So when we're letting go, we're letting go out of a kindness for ourselves. When there's that genuine self-care and kindness, we let go because we care about ourselves. We care that we're holding, that we're suffering, we're creating suffering. <clears throat> it's like the story um, Jack tells about the two prisoners who were in prison for 20 years or however long it was. And they're outside, they've finished, they've done their time. And one asks the other, you know, do you, do, you, do, you for, do you forgive your captors? Do you forgive the people who put you inside? And the other man said, no, no way, I was innocent. Why would I, forgi- why would I forgi- forgive them? And the other one said, oh, well, they still have you in prison then. To the extent that we don't let go, to the extent that we're holding on, Who's the one that's suffering? Right? And when our hearts are closed, when we're unforgiving, when we're holding on, who's the one that's suffering? And when we have some tenderness and kindness with ourselves, we, can, we, there's that, we become more of an ally to ourselves. And we let go because we feel, we know the wisdom of that. We, we know that it, it reduces our suffering, our pain. So only three more ma- three more hours to go. So don't worry. <laughs> this is from Byron Katie, who has a particular way of meeting. She even wrote a book called "Loving What Is." I have I. I have I'm happy to be this 63 year old woman. I love that I weigh 160 pounds. I love that I'm not any smarter than I am. I love that my skin is getting wrinkled and loose. I love that some mornings I'm almost blind and there's just a haze of a world and I can barely see where I'm going. 
I love where my hands have been put and I love how I'm breathed and positioned and angled. This is someone who's learned in a very loving way to meet what is. It's a very different way of looking at aging and the body getting older, right, with that capacity of meeting what is, letting go of some idea of how it should be, how it should look, how you want it to be, and say, oh, it's like this, like this. Easier said than done, but possible. So I want to leave you with another reading. which is really pointing to um, a key teaching in in Buddhist teaching, which is around the fact that we get really busy doing stuff, being somebody, being somebody important, being special, trying to get somewhere, trying to change our reality. And we forget in all that busyness that what we're seeking is already right here. The peace, the ease, the well-being. So this is a, um, a beautiful piece from Genjin Rinpoche, wonderful Tibetan teacher. Let's just get a flavor of this quality. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily rises in your body and mind, why identify with it? Why become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. Only your searching for happiness prevents you from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as a thing or place, it's available and accompanies you every instant. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. So um, what I want to leave you with is a couple of reflections just to ponder on through your day, through your week. And the first is, what are you holding on to that causes suffering. What was it? What, what are you holding on to, or what is what is a way that you're relating to what's happening that causes you suffering? And the second reflection is: What would it support you or allow you to let go? What would allow you? Which really means: What would allow you to meet this moment, this experience, as it is? Okay, so thank you, dear ones. Nice to see you all. 
next week, I think, um, let me tell you who will be here. James Baraz will be here. He's um, author of Awakening Joy and no doubt will be talking about joy. So, and Jack will be here in a couple of weeks. Okay, thank you. Travel safe. Take your chairs back to the side. Drive right out of Spirit Rock and be happy. I'll try. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.